This morning's text will be taken from 1 Samuel 28, starting at the third verse. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Mm-hmm. All right, it was April uh, 1945. Germany was about to collapse. They were under great pressure. The Allies were coming in from the west. Russia was advancing from the east. Soon Berlin itself would be taken over. Um, and yet, a man by the name of Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda for the Third Reich, was over the moon happy. He had just received word that Franklin D. Roosevelt had died, plus he was very much involved in the occult and astrology. Not to be confused with the good thing, astronomy, but astrology, this idea of looking at the stars, right, and read my horoscope and so forth. Well, he had read his horoscope, <laughs> and uh, he had just explained that, that uh, he, in early April, he was excited to tell Hitler, it's written in the stars that at the end of the month, Germany will see an overwhelming victory. This is early April, 1945. Much to Goebbels' dismay, Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, and the rest is history. We know there was a victory, all right, but it wasn't what he was thinking. And Goebbels, is not, he's not really unique, though. I mean, we look at that and we think, what a silly guy, right? What a, what a silly guy. But he's not unique. When we as humans face crisis and pain and heartache and difficulty, people seem to turn to whatever source that will bring them some kind of hope. Just anything that will somehow speak to what they want to hear. Did you know one in five Americans consult a psychic or medium at least once a year? And for decades, mediums like Sylvia Brown, Teresa Caputo, the, the, Long, the Long Island medium, as she's known as, John Edward crossing over, all of these have remained very popular. This idea of, of seeking advice from supernatural realms that can reach into the realm of the dead. So what our text today talks about is not really anything new. All right, we're looking at Saul today as he reaches out to the medium of Endor. Now, let's look at this. We're going to learn a lot today. There's a lot of things we're going to look at here, but um, we begin with a flashback before we actually get into Saul and the witch or medium. KJV says the witch of Endor, but medium, same idea uh, of Endor. So we do a flashback. The writer wants us to understand some things before we begin. So what we see in verse 3, he reminds us, now Samuel has died. So it's as though he's setting up the scene. Don't forget, folks, Samuel is dead. And all Israel has mourned for him and buried him in Ramah. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So he wants us to understand the setup here. 
the prophet of God is dead, so there's no word from God from Samuel. And necromancy, that's communicating with the dead, or mediums, they have been outlawed, punishable by death. So this is, this is what's happening. This is the setup. So now this makes what happens here on out a little strange. But verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and, and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. See, what we have here is not just a few raiding parties of the Philistines that the, that the Israelites have been dealing with off and on. This is the entire Philistine army in all of its glory. And they have now encamped in Shunem to the north, and Israel, Saul and his men, are to the south in Gilboa, and here is the standoff. And yet when Saul looks at that massive army, his heart fails. He is scared to death. <laughs> I just had a silliest thought. Why is that when, when you're preaching? I just think it was just like the, the, the commander of the, the naval vessel that was flanked on all sides. He, he was, uh, he was, oh, never mind. Anyway, let's just get back to this. Let's get back to this sermon. Notice the impending doom that just is over him here in, in, in verses uh, uh, four and five, right? He's afraid. His heart trembled greatly. He's having a heart attack, literally in his own uh, mind, an anxiety attack, whatever you want to call it. So what happens? Here's his real problem. You think that's a problem, right? To have the Philistine army encamped against you and you have inferior forces and you think that's a problem? Here's his real problem in verse six. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. There was no communication, nothing. Now, again, we, the, the Urim was a revelatory device that could be uh, only accessed and only used by the priests. Remember? And Saul killed all the priests but one. And that one that escaped is with David. So there is no access here to communicate. The prophets, they're not, they're not responding to Saul whatsoever. They're not going to speak to him for two reasons. <laughs> First, because Samuel was dead. But secondly, because the prophets, when Samuel declared that the kingship was over for Saul, they... They were done with Saul. So Samuel has already declared that, Saul, you're finished. And the prophets are saying, yep, you, you have sinned against God. God has written you off. It's over. So basically what we see, the biggest problem Saul has is this. He is totally isolated from God. And that is the biggest problem that anybody will ever have. There is nothing else that compares to those frightening, horrible words that he did not hear anything from God. And, and therefore to be totally isolated from God. But Saul has a solution to this problem, right? He's got a solution. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. It's pretty interesting how the government understood. They've outlawed this thing of mediumship, but, but they sure knew where to find one. When he asks. And so the interesting thing is, we've got Saul who's been cut off from God because of his sin. His response should be to repent. 
and plead for mercy from God. Return to the Lord. That should be his response. But instead of doing the right thing and saying, Lord, I have sinned against you, therefore there's, there's, there's this cutoff from you. I'm under your wrath now. I should repent. But instead of that, I'm going to find another way. I'm going to find some other way to find out what I should do and seek other advice outside of you. So this is when we meet the medium of indoor. Verses 8 and 9. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, two bodyguards. And they came to the woman by night. So do you see that picture? Obviously, he has to hide who he is from, for several reasons. Indoor is to the north of Shunem. And Shunem is to the north of Israel, Saul's army. So Saul, to get to Endor, literally has to skirt around the camp of the Philistines. This is how desperate Saul is. So he has to disguise himself, has to take all of his royal garb off, any rings, anything that would give him away as the king of Israel as he's moving in case he gets captured. But he also cannot let this medium know who he is because she knows that Saul outlawed mediums and he would kill her. That's the death penalty for her. So he's got to hide and disguise himself, and he goes out by night. And it says this, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for, for my life, to bring about my death. So this woman was not silly. And she's saying, what are you doing, man? I mean, this is, you know, this is outlawed, right? Now, why did Saul initially cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land? Why? Because God commanded them to be cut off. That's why. He did something right there in, in, a, in, a, in a way by obeying God a little bit at this juncture. He did do that. He did, he did do what the law says. Torah said, Leviticus 19.31 said this. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. That was in the law. This is probably the law that Samuel the prophet had delivered to the king, Saul, when he anointed him. He said he wrote down the law, he wrote down a book, gave it to the king and said, here it is. This is God's word, God's law. And this is it. Leviticus 26 says this in the law. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And this is a teaching for us, right? The law instructs all of us. This is God's will. And it's funny how Christians say, well, can I get my palm read? Is it okay to go to a fortune teller? Is it okay if I go to a psychic? Can I do this and this and this? And I'm just going to, and people want to get into all the high grass about why is it wrong and what exactly is the problem? And really, folks, it's very simple. God doesn't like them. <laughs> That's all we need to know, right? 
and, and, and inferred right here by the law is that they are unholy and unclean. It's wrong. He says, sanctify yourself, set yourself apart, be holy, as opposed to seek out your fortune by necromancers and mediums. You see that? That's all we need to know. God says, do not do it, be holy. And there you have it. This is what God's word tells us. And Saul had already at least gone through the motions outwardly of getting rid of these mediums and declaring them illegal. But now, of course, in his great desperation, throws all that out and goes after a medium himself. Now look at this ironic oath, oh, oh, I'm sorry, oath, oath that he makes to this medium. When she says, look, are you trying to get me killed? This is dangerous. I'm not even supposed to be here. And look, what, look at this ironic oath of Saul. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. She, Saul made a promise to her, swore an oath to her in the name of the Lord. He said, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I mean, Saul is so spiritually bankrupt at this point that he promises this woman in God's name that God would not punish her for breaking God's very law. Isn't that a little insane? <laughs> and I'm telling you, folks, as human beings, we, we all have this heart to wander away from God, and we do not want to submit to God. And even today, I'm telling you, we're all prone to this. Even religious leaders, pastors, are making promises to those people to various people who are in sin, breaking the very laws of God and telling them God's okay with this. In the Lord's name, this is okay. I'm telling you. Um, to say things like, well, the Bible really doesn't mean this. Here's what Paul really meant to say. And it's really not that much different than what we see Saul telling this medium. In God's name, I'm telling you, woman, you'll be okay to do this. So we've got to be careful. It, it's, it's not the pastor who gives you authority to do things. It's, it's, it's not some church leader that gives you authority and tells you whether something's right or wrong. It is the word of God. It's the word of God. And so look what happens here. <laughs> Woo! This is going to be exciting, folks. If you've not read this before, this is the Gomer Pyle moment. <laughs> surprise, surprise. That's what's happening here. Because God allows all this. Look at what happens in verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, folks, everybody knew Samuel. As we've said before, Samuel's ministry was amazing. God was powerfully among him, uh, uh, upon him. He was anointed by God. He was a faithful prophet. He proclaimed the word of God, and powerful deliverance happened. So everybody knew Samuel. And everybody knew Samuel's connection with Saul. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And what happened? It happened. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. I, I, this is amazing. The, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? What do you see? 
And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And he said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Homage, homage, whatever you want to say. He, he, he bowed down there. Now, many wonder, there's a little debate about this, uh, surprisingly enough, among scholars. What's going on here? Is this real? <laughs> so there's a couple of ways to interpret this. One would be that it's trickery, like mediums, period, right? The idea of I speak to the dead on, on, on your behalf. Number one, it's a fake. That's one way to look at it. It's a hoax. People are getting your money, and they're really good at reading the crowd and saying certain facts and getting you to think and buy it. They're watching you, reading your language, kind of going along with it and so forth, and making you believe it's real. That's happened throughout the centuries, right? It could be a hoax. On the other hand, we know that there is a reality to supernatural things, that the spirit realm is real. We don't just fight flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And so the other way that this is interpreted is that all of this is satanic. It's, it's a demon impersonating Samuel to mislead Saul. And I think, again, that's, a, that's in general a pretty... Uh, you know, a pretty good definition of what even happens today with mediums and palm readers and psychics. There can be an element of spiritual truth to this stuff because demons can gather information. They know things. And therefore, they can impersonate and they can distract. And what better distraction? Get away from seeking God when my dead loved one can tell me what's going on. And so that, that's a very possibility as well. And then the other way of interpreting this is that it's all real. This is actually Samuel, come back from the dead. God allowed this, and it's, it's real. It's, it's the real thing. Now, I lean on the last one. I believe this is a real occurrence. I believe this is Samuel. Why? One reason I believe this, I think this lady was prone to a little bit of fakery in her past, <laughs> a little bit of, you know, fooling people because something happens. It says, when she saw Samuel, she said, ah! <laughs> what? I mean, she was doing, <laughs> she was doing her thing, right? And her crystal ball, uh, whatever. And, and she actually was just getting ready to make up some stories when, whoa, is this real? Her description of him, uh, like a God coming up from the, the, the ground, this, this, this legend Samuel that everybody had known, and he's coming up from the ground. I, and it's obvious that only she could see because Saul said, hey, don't worry about that. What do you see? What do you see in your crystal ball or whatever uh, apparatus? Many think she, there was a pit dug in these mediums where they would look down into it as the uh, medium and pretend, or not pretend, they would see whatever they want to see. Uh, but the person couldn't see, only the medium could see. So he asked her, obviously he couldn't see. What do you see? And she was explaining it. But she was freaked out. <laughs> So I believe it was real. And, and as we go on, I think you'll see by what is happening in this text. That's a genuine account. I like what Robert Bergen says in his commentary. It says this. Indeed, a straightforward reading of the biblical account suggests the possibility that mediums may possess the, the capacity to contact dead persons and establish lines of communication between the living and the dead. Thus, the Torah prohibits necromancy, not because it's a hoax, 
but because it promotes reliance on supernatural guidance from some source other than the Lord. And again, I think that's again what, what God was saying at the beginning, why it was banned. It's demonic. It's, of, it's, of, it's a source. It's, it's genuine. There are spirit realms. But by doing so, we are committing adultery to the Lord. We are seeking out some other spiritual guidance other than the Lord himself. And that's why it was banned. But look at this. 15 and 16 really show us here. Samuel's a little upset. <laughs> look what he says. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Hmm. And Samuel said, well, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? That's a strong We've actually covered this before, but this is, again, the place somebody is. If you are not in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you are in this place. You're either in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work and his shed blood, or you're not. And if you're not, you're an enemy. So this is just the way the Bible declares this. We are either a friend of God meet through the mediator, Jesus Christ, or we are an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. So now that Saul has been wickedly rebellious over and over to the commands of Yahweh, he is now an enemy of God. He's been cut off in a sense. That's huge language. But this is one of the reasons I really believe this is the prophet Samuel. It seems to me demonic forces would have lied to, to Saul. This is truth. <laughs> Samuel is still a prophet. He's, he, he just picks up where he left off. He says, yeah, you, you are God's enemy. <laughs> he goes on in verse 17. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Am Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Not the answer Saul was looking for, but the truth. And again, a reason I believe this is God's sovereignty here, allowing this to happen, allowing Saul to literally appear before uh, Samuel, to literally appear before Saul, and just to preach to him the truth again. This is where you're at, Saul. You rebel against God. You did not obey his commands. And God has brought you to this place today. And that's not the only bad news. I mean, Saul is wishing he never, ever, ever asked this woman to bring about Samuel. Look at verses 19 and 20. Moreover, see, Samuel's not finished yet. It's been a while since he's preached. He's getting back in, right? He's excited. He's on a roll now, right? He says, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And look at this. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all that day. 
So you wanted a prophet to come back and talk to you, and he, he did. And this is it. Man, I can't help. It's it, it just, there's a couple things we learn from this, that verse, those, those two, 19 and 20. We learn the perspective on, on, on death. And the truth is, none of us know when death is happening. We all know this. We've just experienced this. We don't know when our death will happen. We just know that it will. It's, it's the most sure thing on your calendar, really. It's an appointment that's been made. Hebrews tells us it's appointed unto men and women once to die. And then after that, the judgment. So all that's going to happen. We just don't know when. But we can't boast ourselves of tomorrow. So Saul is just told that, hey, it's tomorrow. You're pitching. I know it's a funny story, but the guy at the gates of heaven says, is there baseball in heaven? He said, well, I got good news and bad news. Yes, there's baseball in heaven. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. And the bad news is you're pitching tomorrow. So anyway, that's kind of what's going on here. But I want to say a minute, because we need to take a, a little break here since we have this opportunity in the scriptures, because when you're preaching through the Bible, you do come upon subjects that you may nor, nor, normally hit. And what we have here is this mention of, of interesting wording. It says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And where, where did Samuel come from? It said, it said he came up from down, right? And he, he came up, he was coming up, the, the medium said. And then even Samuel said, Saul, why have you brought me up? Okay. So there's some ideas here uh, about the afterlife. So we get a perspective on death, and we also get some teaching on the afterlife. And so there are some eternal destiny words that I think we all need to understand that are used throughout the Bible, and yet they're very consistent. And so there, there are words like Sheol and Hades, hell and Gehenna, heaven, paradise, Abraham's bosom. These are the main words used for eternity, okay? But they all have a meaning. So Sheol which we see a lot in the Old Testament. Well, that's equivalent to Hades in the New Testament. And so what is that? Sheol or Hades is really the place of departed souls, the place of the departed spirits. That's what that is. And, and so um, even Greek mythology picks up on that with Hades, right? The, the place of the dead. But this is a real thing. This is what I want to say about, about this stuff today is that we're not just talking about fairy tales here. This is God's eternal word reaching into our time and space where we are living beings, but we're temporal, right? We're not, we're not uh, uh, infinite, we're finite. But God is reaching into our world and showing us eternity. He's giving us these glimpses of what the afterlife is. And this is real. There is a place of Sheol, the place of the dead, Hades, if you will. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment in a, in a, in a, in a context. But then you've got hell and Gehenna. Those are the, the, uh, the places of everlasting torment that the Bible talks about, right? We've heard of hell and Gehenna. And the Bible uses both of those words, and they both mean the same thing, the place of eternal pun, uh, torment. And then you have words like heaven and paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, we hear that we are to store up our treasures in heaven and not here below on earth, right? We hear about Abraham's bosom. This was, was a, a, a Jewish Hebrew way of, of talking about paradise. Paradise is with Abraham, to be in Abraham's presence where there's everlasting joy. That's what heaven, paradise, Abraham's bosom, all of those refer to the place of everlasting joy. All of these things are real. Now, I want to use one quick story where Jesus actually 
shows us how this works because Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead, that's what we're talking about. And again, this could be debated by some scholars as well, but I'm going to tell you the right way. <laughs> okay. The way I see it in scripture, Hades or Sheol is a, is a holding place and it appears to be in the middle of the earth, so to speak. We could say that somewhere down, right? In, in the center. And uh, again, this is what Jesus kind of verifies that this place before the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it was a holding place for all of the spirits that departed, whether they were righteous in Christ through faith, even the Old Testament saints by faith believed, or wicked. And they would be in this same area, this holding tank, waiting for the final day. But I believe personally at the resurrection of Christ, as Peter talks about him ascending, or descending, and bringing captivity out. Uh, at this point, I think that is now just a holding tank for all wicked. Now, as Paul said, to be absent from the bodies and be present with the Lord for all believers. I hope you're following. This is, I know, a whole series we could be preaching on this. I'm trying to give you some of this real quick. But the reason I say all that is Jesus, I think, confirms this in Luke 16, 19 through 23. In a story which I don't think is a parable, as, as, as he uses proper names, and it seems very specific. So notice what he says about the rich man, and Lazarus. Many of us have heard this whole story. We're not going to read the whole story, but we're going to read beginning verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now here's where we enter into eternity. Jesus is talking here, and he knows about this, right? He's the one I want to hear from about this. So here it is. I don't need somebody to make a movie saying 90 seconds in heaven. I don't need somebody else. I've got the word of God. This is my authority for what happens after this world. Jesus said the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom is the literal uh, Greek there. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. You say, well, there's two different places there. One's Abraham's side, one's Hades. But look, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he goes on to tell us there's a great gulf fixed between them. They couldn't pass from one to the other. So Hades in general was this place at that time, it seems. And there was a paradise side where we see the beggar, Lazarus, in the presence of Abraham and the rich man in torment on the other side. Now, all this is real. And and, and the reason I'm saying this, folks, is when we read the Bible and we hear from the words of God, we have to take this seriously. Now, the only way way you're going to do that today is by the Holy Spirit, because some of you are already laughing or some, you know, somebody who doesn't have any love for God whatsoever, any interest in spiritual things, this is all, nothing more than Greek mythology, nothing more than fantasy. But by the Spirit's aid, I pray today that somebody is thinking, you know what, my little problems in this life are nothing compared to this. You know, I'm worried about building that house or finishing this this addition or or getting that promotion and saving that money and blah, 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 blah. When the words of Samuel should be taken to your heart, tomorrow you'll be with me. Tomorrow you're going to be in the afterlife. (laughs) Tomorrow this world is insignificant. That's why I want to take that time 
to talk about that. Now, let me make a quick application, just some quick applications over this whole text, right? Been a pretty interesting text. And yet, here's the application that I want us to take. And here, here it is. Listen, when a genuine believer feels that God is being silent with him, because folks, don't get me wrong, Saul may not have been a believer, so we understand that. But there are believers who also feel that pain that Saul was feeling. When you pray, and it seems like the heavens are brass, right? Like the floor of brass is just, it's bouncing off of that. It's not even getting there. Now, be honest with me. As a Christian, have you ever felt like that when you're praying? That it's just brass. There's no, nothing. Okay, so this is a real thing. So when a genuine believer feels that God is being silent with him, Genuine believer, this is a consistent thing. This goes into the perseverance and preservation of the saints. The fact that, that even though I'm not feeling it, God, I'm not feeling you. So even though that may be happening to us, a genuine believer does not go and consult a psychic or a medium for direction. They continue waiting on and seeking out the Lord. That's what we see through the scriptures. That's what David is an example of for us. There's days that he was not feeling it, trust me. <laughs> Hungry, tired, battered, falsely accused, hunted down by Saul. And he wasn't feeling it. Many of the Psalms, he's saying, how long, O Lord, will you betray me? How long will you forsake me? But he never <laughs> went to a medium and asked, hey, help me out here. I need some other advice. God's not doing it for me right now. No. He waited. He continued to be faithful. When you find yourself in a tight spot and God seems to be silent, here's what we got to do. Be still. Just be still. We're so much of a fix-it culture, right? Got to fix it now. Got to do something. Got to do something to fix this. The best advice for a believer who is waiting on peace from God is to wait. And be still. This means you don't act on your own understanding. You continue to pursue the Lord and the wisdom of God because you have nowhere else to go. Right? What did the apostles say? Jesus, when, when, when everybody forsook Jesus after he was done with the free lunches, and now he says, what I want you to do now is forsake your father and mother and follow me. Give up everything in this world and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Be prepared to be persecuted like I was. Be hated like I was. Follow me. Well, everybody left him. <laughs> and Jesus looked to his apostles and said, will you also go away? And they said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So don't be tempted to move ahead of God and seek advice and wisdom from sources other than God's word. And worse yet, sources that contradict God's word. <laughs> don't do that. Look what David teaches us. Just be still. It's okay to be still. It's okay to wait in your anxiety. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle the anxiety or the, the fear or the uncertainty of a problem or a time or a season. But I am encouraging us to be still and know. That's what, that's what, that's what David did. Psalm 46, 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, and God of, the God of Jacob is our fortress. This is what we do. We wait on God, and we 
are reminded by his word that he will be exalted. He tells us, just calm down, stay still. I will be exalted over all the earth. I am victorious over all things. You will be exalted with me. Just be still. Just be still. I'm your fortress. He says in Psalm 27 14, David tells us, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You see, it's courageous as a believer to stand fast in the faith when we're tempted to run and fix it in our own power. True courage says, Lord, I'm afraid, I don't understand. There's a lot of other options out there pulling at me. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to encourage myself. I'm going to be strong in you. Now look at this. Trust not only in the inerrancy of the Bible. We know the Bible is inerrant, the perfect word of God, infallible. But trust not only in the inerrancy of the Bible, but also in the sufficiency of the scriptures. This is where many Christians, I think, we, we kind of go astray. We, we also, oh, the Bible's the word of God, no doubt. The Bible's inerrant, the Bible's the word of God. But when trials come, we panic and we don't even trust the sufficiency of scripture. We gotta have something else. Somebody else's advice has to come along and help bolster up the Bible. No, folks, we are people of the book. Be patient. Trust the sufficiency of the word of God. That's how we curtail any temptation to run and find some substitute wisdom from the world or even other religions or, or whatever. Patient and persistently Patiently and persistently trusting God. So that, that's hard. This is the hard stuff. To be patiently persistent, those don't even seem to go together. But we patiently, tenaciously seek God. You see, the whole time we're waiting on God, we do not stop begging him and seeking him and crying out for his wisdom and his grace. You see that? That's the real work. That's the real armor of God, like Ephesians. All that stuff is put on by prayer. We're, we're, we're going to wait on God. We're standing fast. We're not charging out our own power. We're standing fast, crying out to the only one who can bring deliverance. So we're patiently waiting, but tenaciously asking, deliver me, O God. We are always looking to the hills, right? Psalm 121, 1 through 8. David said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. You see that? I mean, Satan's telling him, you're over, David. You're done. You're defeated. Everybody hates you. There are, you know, all these lies are probably true about you. You're probably no good. So just, you know, look down, man. Kick the, the, the you know, ground and step on a squirrel. I, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's what the enemy tells us. And yet, what did David say? I will look to the hills. From, from, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He continually spoke the truth of God's word to himself. Enemy says I'm done. Enemy says I'm surrounded. Enemy says I have no hope in this life. But I know where my hope comes from. It doesn't come from anybody around me. It comes from him. It comes from heaven. I will look to the hills. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Why would I worry about trying to find my wisdom anywhere else but in the one who made all of it? He made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Hear the word of the Lord. That's God's authority. This is where Christians rest when everything breaks loose. I mean, a recent study conducted by Pew Forum showed that more than one quarter of American adults are leaving the Christian faith each year. One quarter of American adults are leaving the Christian faith each year. And here are the top two out of the 15 reasons. The top two out of 15 reasons cited. Number one, God just never shows up. I really never liked that term. God showed up. Mm. But anyway, I'm sorry. That's just me. But here's the problem with that, because there'd be a time, if you're basing your time on all the times God showed up, there's going to come a time that it doesn't feel like he showed up. Trust me. And this is what they're, they're saying. I'm leaving Christianity now because God just never shows up. And they can see no proof of God's existence, therefore. That's a problem. There's no proof of God's existence, of course. That's sun shining out here, all the earth, the animals, the life itself. Well, there's no proof. Because God didn't show up in some extraordinary way. And then number two, their prayers are not answered. Once again, they see no evidence of any intervention from God. So that's the two top-sided reasons, two, two, two most cited reasons for, for adults leaving Christianity. Now listen. The truth is, when we are consumer Christians, rather than grateful Christians, the truth is that God has shown up for us enough for all eternity. I want to say that again. For those who are genuine Christians, not just consumer Christians, I hope you understand the difference. A consumer Christian is always waiting for God to do something. You always got to keep me excited, keep, me, keep, my, keep my bucket filled right? I'm going to sit under the glory spout so God's glory can fill my bucket. I know I'm try I shouldn't be so silly, but, <laughs> I, but I'm serious. That's kind of a mentality, but yet that is a consumer idea, right? I'm going to come and God's going to give me and he's going to keep on. He's going to top that. He's going to, he's going to top what he did last week. And that experience I had then is going to be better this time. But the truth is genuine Christians Understand that God has shown up. And he's shown up enough for all eternity. If he never shows up again for us, he's already shown up enough for us. That's what the true believer understands. <laughs> Romans 5.8 is the way to explain this, right? To all of these critics, well, God's not giving me this, and God's not doing this, and I want more and more, and I want to feel good, good. Paul just blows through it and says, but... God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't need any more. <laughs> there is no more. What greater love has this than a man lay down his life? So if he never does another thing for me in my life, he's already done more than I'll ever deserve by redeeming my sinful soul and making me his child. 
And on top of that, as we're learning in the book of Revelation, all the stuff that God, and all through the Bible, by the way, all of the promises that are yes in Jesus Christ. Everything that God has prepared for us, those who love him, we can't even imagine. And these people, God doesn't show up. What? This is why we preach the gospel every day to ourselves. Because if a person is preaching the gospel, if you are praying every morning and remembering what Christ has done for you, you walk through that day already filled up. Realizing I've got everything from heaven that I ever need in Christ Jesus. I need no other source but him. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for its inerrancy, but thank you for its sufficiency. Let us rest in it. Trust it. Be encouraged by it, emboldened by it, strengthened by it. Until we look into the eyes of the word of God one day. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.